I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Lydia Lamelli. And we love to watch. We love to watch, but not back in the summer of Alt 7. All radio back then. Back then, we liked to listen more. feeling that that main accent is going to come out quite a bit during the recording of this podcast i wrote in my notes uh best movie accent of all time question mark it's it's all it's amazing because it just drips with uh it drips with, with like atmosphere like it's not often that like there's very few actors that like just their sound of their voice is uh, an atmospheric element in the movie. It's like him, Bela Lugosi, Boris Karlov. But his is like sweet malice. It's very weird. Um, anyways, hi. We're <laughs> yeah. We Love to Watch. We, we are We Love to Watch. Uh, and we're a movie podcast. And typically, we pick a theme. Well, this time we still picked a theme. But we pick a theme and we do movies over the course of the month around that theme, but this time we didn't pick the movies within that theme because we're doing our second incarnation of Ladies Fright Night, where we have uh, partnered with the film group Ladies Who Dissolve to have some of their members come on our show, pick a movie, and discuss it with us. That's important to them. The only criteria is that it must be a horror movie directed by a woman. And uh, this week we are joined, as you heard, by Lydia Lamali. Lydia, thank you so much for coming on our show. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience and uh, let us know what movie you picked and why? Well, I'm Lydia Lamelli, and I, on the Dissolve, I'm known as Lidsville. I have a background in radio broadcasting, but it's been a long time since I've done anything on the radio since I've had children. So uh, my whole life, I've loved horror movies. That's my preferred genre that I watch the most all year round, and. So, of course, I love Halloween. So this is my favorite time of the year. And so I usually double up on my horror movies during this time. But for the rest of the year, I'm pretty much going to horror movies. That's my first thing that I'm going to jump to when a new movie comes out in the theater. And I'm really excited to be here and to be um, on this podcast with you guys today. Awesome. And I know you have the background in radio because when we were kind of practicing in the green room, you cut to weather like five times, which was <laughs> a little bit like, it's fine. We can talk about the weather. We just don't have anyone on staff paid to specifically talk about it. I'm not that. doing call letters, so I'm, I'm good. <laughs> it's all out of my brain by now. It's all gone. So. <laughs> uh, and as Aaron can't read uh, one, one of those uh, screens, he just kept saying, there's a lot of yellow stuff over here and sort of waving generally. Oh yeah, the yellow stuff is the most dangerous kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah you don't you don't want to get caught up in that. <laughs> you don't want to get caught up in the yellow. You, stuff. you don't you don't want to get caught up in that. Oh, it's gonna be a long episode. Oh, Lydia, you picked a movie though, which we just keep ruining with the accent. What well, movie did you pick? They're all long episodes. <laughs> it's Pet Cemetery, the the original Pet Cemetery, nineteen eighty nine, I believe it is. Is it? Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> And why'd you, why'd you, why was that a movie that you wanted to come on this show to discuss with us? Well, we were thinking about 
you know, movies that were directed by horror movies that are directed by, you know, females. And this was one that stuck out for me because as a child, it really did make an impression on me and it stuck throughout the years. And um, I never knew it was directed by a female. But when I was doing my research and saw that it was directed by Mary Lambert, I was like, you know what, I I think I'm going to choose that one because it really, um, it's a very sad and disturbing movie, but it's also, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's Stephen King and, and, and I like the way that the story was adapted. Um, not the best acting, but it still no. still gets to you, you know, because it yeah. has such a great, um, it has great actors in it, but, you know, it's questionable as far as the acting. <laughs> My husband thinks the acting's horrible, but I, it's always stuck with me. So I think it, uh, it was worth exploring and talking about because it's, it's beloved to me. So <laughs> I kind of feel like besides The Shining, at least when I grew up, um, This was, I would actually even say more than The Shining, because even though The Shining is obviously a much more well-regarded horror film, when I, when I, like, was in elementary school in the 90s, the Stephen King adaptation that my friends talked about the most was Pet Cemetery. That was the one that spooked them, that people were like, this is the scariest movie of all time. I didn't watch it for the first time until I was in college, and we'll, we'll get into this later. Fun fact, I turned it off, because, uh... Right at the moment, the kid got run over by the car because I'm like, "Fuck this, nope." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I can't, I can't do it. It was too much. Like I was like 19. That kid is the most fucking adorable kid in the world. He gets mowed down by the truck, which I did not know was coming because I hadn't read the book. And I'm like, "No, can't, can't, can't watch another 45 minutes of their grief or whatever comes next." Uh, I didn't watch it for the first time till last year's Spooktober all the way through. Can I jump in here really quickly? Yeah, uh, yeah. my uh, my mother, Diane. Wonderful lady. I met her. Um, she, she used to read, uh, yes, you did. I had a long conversation trying to explain to her how, why we were friends that she <laughs> very gamely played along with while also being like, M- half the words you're saying I don't get. Dissolve, <laughs> like, bloodborne. Like nice young man, good head yeah. on your shoulders. Instant why are you messenger. hanging out with my son? Um, my mother, Diane Moran, she uh, abhors most spooky things now, but growing up, she was like a horror movie and horror book fiend, and she was reading this book back in the day um, when it came out, and when she got to the part where uh, a child dies, uh, she tore the book in half and threw it across <laughs> the room. <laughs> she like tore the cover off the book and threw it across the room. <laughs> uh, I think that's uh, like, it is, and then the movie only makes it worse, because... Uh, Miko Hughes in this movie is not only I think to to Lydia to your husband's point about the bad acting he's not only the best actor I think tied with the main guy um, but also I think he may be the most adorable kid in a movie that I can think of and they fucking run him over with a car while his bloody shoe careens away from his presumably lifeless body I know we're not we're getting into the meat right now uh, so to speak but like do you think that yeah, the meat, great terminology for that one. <laughs> Do you think <laughs> that choosing a cute, uh, as cute a kid as they did, like, almost like too cute, like fake, like TV commercial cute baby, um, they, do you think that that makes the end scarier or less scary <laughs> that he's so, just so, like, uh, like, cuddleable? I think it's, I think it's scarier. I think that part when he goes no fair and he switches from, like, evil to, like, just just kid who didn't get his way, but it's kind of like, yeah, I was kind of being a jerk. Like, I think that moment is fucking chilling. But anyways, you're right. That's we're getting right. too far into it. Uh, it's because, yeah, this movie affected me greatly. And we're going to talk more about it uh, in a moment. But first, we got some spooky recaps to do. 
But before we do that, well, before we share our uh, problems with the world of how many new horror movies we've watched uh, so far this month, which is uh, eight days into it, and the last time we recorded is October 4th, so we're only going to have four days of recap. I bet as people with lives and families and jobs, we watch maybe, I don't know, two movies would seem reasonable, Peter? Maybe like Uh, one or two? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, It's not going to be one or two. Uh, But before we do that... Lydia, what have you what what either horror movies have you watched recently in October, a little bit before October you want to talk about or what are some of your big uh spooktober of viewing plans that have yet to happen? Well, believe it or not, I hadn't watched um Sleepaway Camp until this year. So I'm horribly oh. embarrassed of myself, I have to say. Your Skype avatar is the Sleepaway Camp host. It is now because <laughs> it has made an impression on me, but I think if I would have watched that as a child, I might be uh, all traumatized. And yeah. so I'm glad that I waited till I was of a mature age <laughs> because it's it's a little bit, you know, the ending is a little bit traumatizing. But um, I'm embarrassed because it's, a, you know, a big horror, um, important movie for the horror um, fans. And I don't know why I never got to it. I think because it just wasn't on cable. It wasn't accessible <laughs> to me as, as a child and... And now that I've watched it, um, I'm a big fan of it. And I, you know, I think it's great. It's kind of got like this, it has a really campy vibe and it has like um, the vibe that you get from kids who are um, camping, um, who live like in the New York area. And there's a whole different vibe than yeah. like the, like if you were camping in the Midwest or the West Coast. So I enjoyed it and I'm glad that I saw it and I've watched it several times since then. And now I'm obsessed with it, I guess. That cra- the craziest <laughs> thing about that movie is realizing that Wet Hot American Summer is a parody of that movie, like, from a scene-by-scene basis. And then also, the other thing that's crazy is that uh, – oh, not crazy, but if you haven't seen uh, Parts 2 and 3, also very good. Very different, but very, very good. Yeah, I'm excited to see those, which I haven't seen yet, but okay, that's my <laughs> – those are my goals for October uh, before they leave my new favorite um, service, which is Tubi. So Tubi. I, Tubi, yeah, Tubi's great. So I just got introduced to Tubi, which is like, I mean, it seems like the the poor man's shutter, but it has okay. a bunch of other things on there too, and it's like totally free. So I've been having a ball with Tubi. So, but yeah, I was I'm glad I saw it and it was good, and and um, that's the other one that I that I saw recently, and I just saw Suspiria like maybe a couple months ago, the new which the one? the remake, and that one was incredible. So really good, yeah. yeah. So sleep yeah, away I, camp I two like... and three. That's my goals for the for October. <laughs> yes, good. <laughs> but yeah, uh, and then the new Suspiria movie is also just like excellent. And uh, I've been still listening to that score like I don't know a year after I've seen it. Um, it's well, it's actually... stuck. It's stuck in your eight track deck, though, right? Uh, yes, that's ex- that's exactly why. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's good, but ultimately you have to get a new car if you want to listen to something else <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Because you can't get a new eight track deck. If uh, <laughs> yeah, if I flip my car though, it'll play the B side. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's just outtakes from uh, "Hail to the Thief." <laughs> anyway, uh, Peter. So let's see. We our our first recording was on the fourth, and I had watched seven movies so far. Seven new movies. Can you remind me uh, what were you at? So we were on the third, and I watched oh, and two. Okay, two. Uh, 
And then what now you- it's uh, the eighth, and I've watched uh, seven and a half. I stopped watching uh, people under the stairs to come record. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you can't count that yet. We can talk about that one next yeah, week. So yeah, seven. I'll talk about next time because I don't Great. have I don't have thoughts on it yet. But uh, I started with Wendigo, which is a Larry Fessenden movie. And uh, if you're into, if you want to see sort of like the roots of all of these these uh, indie horror mumble gore, all all the, the various bad names we've come up with for this this like film movement over the past ten years to sort of bring back the sort of like human drama to to indie horror movies and make it less about like all right we got ten thousand dollars let's get as many buckets of blood as we can um you should check out some of larry fessenden's early work like this inhabit um this one's very interesting especially if you want uh, just like a human drama um because it works better on that level than it does as a horror movie and then like the last 20 30 minutes the last act basically um it becomes a horror movie then i did a double bill with dracula and blackula um and by that i mean the uh frank langella um john ba- uh, badham uh adaptation from 1979 and uh i really really dug it it's based on the stage play which kind of condenses a lot of the events so it's not like a two and a half hour movie like a lot of dracula movies are um and uh it has its own sense of style its own sense of panache my only uh, downside i would say to it is because it is so like character focused and not focused on the the gore and such the last act can feel a little lifeless, especially compared to how amazing the Coppola one is. Um, and then Blackula was a big old surprise because Blackula is uh, not the silly, I, thanks to uh, the documentary Horror Noir for bring, bringing me into the fold. I thought Blackula was a uh, comedy of some kind or a parody. Um, fun fact, I'm pretty sure they don't even say Blackula in the movie at all. Um, he never refers to himself as that. He always refers to himself as his, 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 uh, African royalty name. Um, and it's, uh, I think Mama Watu was his name. Um, it's, it's, he's a man of dignity and respect and he's like a handsome motherfucker. And like, it's a whole, it's like a whole deal. Um, definitely check out Blackula if you haven't seen it. What's also interesting is it's like pretty much just like, it is an adaptation of Dracula. It's not like. It doesn't deviate that crazily uh, when it adapts it to, like, a uh, 70s uh, low-budget environment. Um, and then uh, Death Becomes Her was the next one. Uh, Death Becomes Her, if I could summarize it, it would be like... Uh, it'd be like... Um, whatever Happened to Baby Jane Meets Society. Okay. Uh, um, it's a big, goofy comedy body horror comedy thing and if you haven't seen it before definitely watch it it's a great way to to like spice up your your spooktober meryl streep and goldie hawn are facing off uh, it's by the, is the villain. it's by the it's by the director of flight right <laughs> yeah robert zemeckis most famous and loved <laughs> movie flight uh has he has he done others uh no oh, okay flight two cruise control um <laughs> Oh, he did that. He did Welcome to to Maribyn or whatever. Uh, uh, yeah, welcome but, to Marwin. Welcome to Marwin. He did the Marwin movie. Oh, um, great, great puppetry. Yeah, yeah. I did, oh, he did Mars Needs Moms, um, Welcome oh. to Marwin, uh, uh, Polar Express, and Death Becomes Her. <laughs> no <laughs> other movies. Good track record. <laughs> um, Robert Zemeckis should have directed more good movies. Oh. Directed some movie I've never heard of called Back to the Future? That doesn't make sense. Um, you gotta pronounce the lines after the title. 
Um, but yeah, Death Becomes Her. Won't say much more about it without getting spoilery, but it's hilarious. And uh, similar to One Cut of the Dead last week, if you need, like, if you're feeling, like, drowned out and, like, super serious stuff, uh, throw this one into the mix, because it'll rejuvenate you. And the last one I watched was Lose, which will probably be the weirdest movie I watched this month, L-U-Z. It's sort of an experimental horror possession thriller. 70 minutes, it largely takes place in, I don't know, maybe, sorry, let's say 60 to 70% takes place in one room. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's very much about characters and atmosphere. It is not about gore or let's get like Lords of Salem style. Let's get the craziest satanic visual visuals we can get in there. Um, it's, it's, but it's, uh, an experimental movie that I think oh doesn't overstay its welcome, so I'm really really happy with it. Um, Aaron, what did you what did you watch this this uh, yeah spooky week? So I was at seven. I'm at thirteen total now. Actually, let me just check one thing. Thirteen. That's the number of ghosts in the movie. Um, thirteen, 13 ghosts. ghosts. Yep. So number of ghosts in the movie thirteen ghosts. But I've uh, according to this, I've watched zero movies by the director of Flight. So oh. you you are beating me. On that, um, but the, the, is but that a letterbox six, category? I don't is that know. for Patreon people only? Move, movies that weren't directed by the director of Flight. It's all but <laughs> ten movies or whatever. Uh, yeah, if you, if you pledge at the fifteen dollars tier, you can do movies that weren't directed by the director of the Mule. Um, so uh, yeah, I've watched six new movies. Uh, a couple new ones: uh, Brightburn, which is the uh, what if uh, Superman was uh, was raised by Ma and Pa Kent, but he's evil Superman, uh, which is, which I actually really liked. It could have been better. Uh, it, it's a weird movie that doesn't have a first act. Like normally the structure for a movie like that would be first act. What a nice, loving boy raised by by fake Ma and Pa Kent. Number two, he starts turning evil. And then number three, whatever the showdown is. This movie, I swear to God. In the you you hear that apparently he's lived 13, 15 years as a nice boy, but it just starts with him all of a sudden after all that becoming evil with no, with barely an inciting incident. He got horny. So yeah, I mean that does come up. Uh, he is uh, fifteen or fourteen, uh, but yeah. So it, it's actually I really liked it. It's ninety minutes. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and then Ma was the other one, which Lydia mentioned. Uh, which I watched for the first time, which, which I which I did really like. Um, but yeah, you're right, Lydia. It is like it's so sad. <laughs> it kind of bummed me out a little. Yeah, I have no idea where. Like, I don't know. Like, I saw it as this horror movie when I watched. It, I was like, man, like I kind of feel bad for her a little bit. And her kid, like, I feel bad for everyone. Well, yeah, her kid especially, but... Yeah. But it's kind of uh, hard to, like, say, hey, this is a great horror movie you should watch. I don't even know how to categorize that movie at all. Yeah, the the previews made it seem like it was going to be, like, oh, cool, a, uh, like, a lunatic, like, like, some, the fan or king of comedy or something, except, like, for a uh, veterinarian who wants to hang out with high school kids and becomes obsessed and stalks them, and it there's a there's a much darker undercurrent to it uh, that's based on like twenty years or thirty years of sadness. So it's it's good. The cast is really good, but yeah, not not quite like the exploitation movie I was expecting. I think it also like made it seem like it was going to be really funny, and there were some funny moments. But I kind of got overtaken by you know when you find out her backstory, and I'm like, it's like wow, this is disturbing. Like this is yeah sad. 
worth watching, but maybe not what you're expecting from the previews. Uh, I saw uh, Fulci's Don't Torture a Duckling. I'm a little hit and miss on uh, Fulci to begin with. Uh, I really like City, on the, uh, City of the Living Dead. Uh, so a lot of other ones that are people's favorites, um, like The Beyond, I'm um, not as positive on, but we're going to give that another whirl here pretty soon. Wink! Wink! But I love Don't Torture a Duckling. It, uh, it, someone described it on Letterboxd as Fulci's Twin Peaks, and I think that's right. Um, <laughs> it is very much about, like, uh, finding out the underbelly, the seedy underbelly of this, like, small Italian Catholic town uh, because of a few murders, uh, child murders that happen. And, yeah, I was not expecting where the movie went. And it's super compelling for the entirety of it, which sometimes with those um, Fulci or Argento movies, I feel like there's a lot of fat. And this one was two hours long, and I felt like it had no fat. It's even kind of divided into two parts uh, to kind of set up, like, where you think the movie's going. And then it kind of, like, stops that halfway through and goes somewhere else. Uh, so I I thought it was really good. Um, and I did figure out, Peter, what the duckling they're talking about is. Uh, it's a Donald Duck stuffed animal. Oh, now I remember. I always yeah. get it confused because in another Fulci movie, uh, New York Ripper, which I wouldn't really recommend to anyone. Um, it's just one of those movies. That's what about really New York Rippers? Gross. Feels like it's made um, for them. What? I said, what about New York Rippers? Uh, yeah. Feels like it's made for them. Yeah. I, it's uh, like, I, I would see a movie called Aaron Armstrong. <laughs> would you recommend all Ma's see Ma? Yeah, but not moms or mommies. Also, I had this thing like, as I'm watching Ma, is there a movie with mom, like some variation of mom in the title that's like where the mom is like where it's a happy movie? Like, not I was going mama. through like, good, not. good, yeah, good night, mommy, mommy, ma, mommy, dearest, don't, don't tell, tell mom, mom the babysitter's just... dead, throw mama from the train. Does anything good happen to moms in movies Marcy's that bear moms. their names? Oh, I got you, Whoa. stepmom. Isn't that, step-mom. There, isn't there a movie called Stepmom with Julia Roberts? There is. There you go. Yes. I don't know. Is that a happy movie? I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's about a, a like a stepmom integrating it, you know, into the life of the child and and getting along with the mother, who is Susan Sarandon, I believe. Okay. Yeah, that probably doesn't end with it's like not a horror movie. So there's no there's no murder. <laughs> I don't think so. It's good. Oh, and I guess Mama Mia is okay too. So Mama Mia, stepmom, you have redeemed the mom genre for happy moms. The, the momra. Bad moms, bad mom Christmas. They ruined Christmas, Peter. <laughs> it's bad moms. Um, I think bad moms um, is a very happy movie. I, I it makes me happy. Uh, I like I like it the makes first me bad happy. moms too. Um, I saw Child's Play two for the first time, which I actually saw Child's Play the original uh, one for the first time last year. I had seen all the. The movies with Chucky in the title, but I'd never seen Child's Play 1 through 3. And Child's Play 2 absolutely rules. I, I was pretty positive on 1 last year, but 2 is like, man, it really ups all the stakes and has a much more like satisfying twist halfway through. And I, I really it like... it kind of balances what the series would become. Yeah. Like, uh, it, I like all the weird corporate serious, stuff. but campy. You know, yeah. like... The, the, the tone is campy, but, like, what's happening is, is dreadfully serious, where, like, by the later movies, like, every murder is a joke. Yeah. I was thinking about making a letterbox list that's, like, uh, uh, ranking the Chucky movies by how preoccupied uh, Chucky is with having sex. And, like, 
in the first two, it would be zero at zero point is he preoccupied with having sex. But then you get to ride a Chucky and it's like his main modus operandi. <laughs> I mean, it, it matches the developmental cycle, you know, like it, it, it first it, the, he's, you know, he's a babe to this world. Uh, he's still getting used to his body. He's going through some 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 stuff. Um, he's trying to find his place in the world. Uh, and then by the later movies, um, he's really embracing that it's, you know, it's his body. And yeah. he needs, he, he's stuck with it. Um, Maybe instead of trying to possess so. this kid, I get married. Yeah. <laughs> Just a change in dynamic. Um, I saw Threads, Peter. Threads, 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 Threads. Yeah. That's uh, it's a sad movie. <laughs> it's, it's, the mo- it's somehow dethroned we need to talk about Kevin for like the saddest movie I've ever seen. Oh, like- I, think we, I think we need to act that Kevin is worse. But in, in fairness, like the last shot of this movie is like... Uh, it's been a whole movie just rubbing in the like abject hostile misery of like nuclear war would cause to a population and then it's like it does the the planet of the apes four thing where it's like oh also what if there's a dead bloody baby <laughs> credits <laughs> um yeah it's so yeah good. Uh, no. But I, I, Threads is Threads is amazing. I gave it a very confident five stars when I saw it recently, like a month or two ago. Um, I think it, especially in this sort of um, this era where we're thinking about nuclear uh, catastrophe a lot more than we were, say, before the last president. And uh, yeah, Chernobyl just came out, and people were obsessed with that. Uh, I think Threads is it's, it's a really good time for Threads. Um, to I saw your note how on bad this shit is. Yeah, I saw your note on Letterboxd that someone needs to make it for global warming, and I agree. Yeah, make, I think someone make, needs to make a Threads on TV with a high budget just about how bad global warming will be. And then finally, cap it off really quick, I watched The Last Exorcism. I really like that movie. Yeah. I I knew it had gotten good reviews, and it was kind of in that area where like there were so many found footage and so many exorcism movies coming out. Where it was like a couple years later, I feel like people went back and were like, no, 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 like this one's good. And I was still skeptical and watching the movie, I was skeptical that I was like, oh, I, sure. I know where this is going. He he's debunks exorcisms. He used to do exorcisms, but they were fake. And now he's debunking one. And like, oh, I'm sure the twist is going to be this one's going to turn out to be real. What a like, you know, I wasn't like it just felt so by the numbers that I put off watching it for a long time. And yeah, it it I mean it's a little bit that, <laughs> but uh, it's not not that. It's not not that, <laughs> but it's also not exactly that. And where it goes at the end, which I was expecting it to be like the demon's real, and maybe the demon kills the preacher. Like it goes somewhere way different than I was expecting, and I was like. Uh, of course, in found footage tradition, I got to see three minutes of the holy shit, what the fuck's going on? Um, and then it ended. But yeah, super good. I, Last Exorcism up there in the like best found footage movies, horror movies that I've seen. Yeah, I was a big fan of that back in the day. I remember telling people to watch it. And then I think one or two people ended up watching a similarly titled uh, <laughs> exorcism movie. And they're like, I don't know what you were talking about. This is the worst yeah. movie ever. And I was like... No, not the final exorcism. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, and I'm actually halfway through a movie myself, Peter. So the the one about real life horror that I subject myself I su- subject myself every year to one uh, documentary that is about horrific things, um, and I count that as a horror movie. 
And I'm in the middle of Prophet's Prey, recommended by Carrie Nelson, who also, for the second time this year, put this month together. Thank you so much, oh, Carrie. I'm not sure. Is it the Warren Jeffs movie? Yeah, it's really bumming me out. Yeah, he's uh, not a good guy. Here's the fun fact about Spooktobers. Uh, real life is the scariest thing of all. But <laughs> uh, with that, uh, I think that's enough Spooktober recap. Lydia, Peter, are you guys ready to talk about a Pet Cemetery from 1989? Oh, yeah. Under the with the Come at the ground line, making a sound The smell of death is on the rail And at night when the cold wind blows No one cares, nobody knows I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery Hey, Pete. Some alternate taglines. Sure, why not? Film. I mean, I'm here recording with yeah. you and Lydia. Uh, I'd say alternate tagline. <laughs> Don't get used to that kid, buddy. <laughs> say, hey, kid, life ain't fair. Uh, hey, kid. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Look both ways. Ah, oh, too late. Ah, too late. It, um, this movie is sponsored uh, by the Bangor Fence Corporation. <laughs> oh, yeah, get a get a fence, family. Uh, I gotta jump in move, right now. Move the, the picnic table. The movie makes the family seem so fucking. Um, I don't know, like it's just maliciously lazy. Yeah, um, the book, like. They really get into the whole, like, argument about the fence and when to go get church fixed so that church doesn't wander. Like, all of those details that in the movie just, like, go really fast in the book, they're like, he, Stephen King really drills down into it. Yeah, they're bad cat owners because they are just like, yeah, I don't know. And the, the, the old guy's like, no, seriously, like, there's a whole graveyard because of all the animals that are getting hit by cars. They're like, well, we'll talk about what to do about it. In the meantime... He's free to roam. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's really bad. Anyway, he's listening to Rome by the B-52s. <laughs> he's he's watching both seasons of HBO's Rome. Um, <laughs> uh, have you, Peter, have Peter or Lydia, actually, before we get into the plot recap, really quick, have you guys seen the remake? I'm not. Not yet. The remake does something a little bit interesting with the part that you've been waiting for the whole movie. So I won't spoil it. It's also not a good movie. I wouldn't watch it, but uh, I would just stay in limbo for the rest of your life wondering what happens. I just love happens. the cast and I love the directors, so it's like at some point I'm going to end up watching it and then being sad. Um, yeah. Anyways. anyways. Yeah. Yeah, what so, happens in this fucking movie, Peter? What happens in this movie? This movie, based on the Stephen King story and actually hewing pretty close to it, is about uh, the Creed family who go to, they move to a small town in Maine. Does this sound familiar? Um, Move to a small town in Maine uh, near a highway um, so so that Lewis Creed, a doctor, can get a job at the local university. And uh, they have this nice big country house. Everything seems very idyllic, but there's this uh, terrifying road that cuts through. And uh, because of this road, they meet uh, their neighbor, Judd. Uh, Judd is a widower. 
And uh not yet. Does his wife die in the movie? Yeah. I don't remember that. Doesn't she hang herself? No, that's a different person. His wife does die in the book though. That's uh is... that that's the their nanny, their like housekeeper. Oh, for some reason I Millie, thought okay. I think. Um who's also in the book. Um but I don't think she can. I guess I can cross out my note about he recovers very quickly from his wife. <laughs> no, she's just uh she's just a uh, a local that they hire to clean the house, help with the kids, um that sort of stuff. Um she's ultimately not that important in the movie, but we'll get to that later. Uh, anyways, uh so they have a they have a housemaid that kills themselves. Thanks, Aaron. Um very sad. Um the, essentially the movie from the, from the highway uh on forward the movie is surrounded by this sort of uh, magnetic pull towards death everyone in the movie has been uh touched by death in some way or will be touched by death in some way and uh but this this particular uh there's there's a uh, pet cemetery up the road uh near uh, the creed's house and judd's house uh that uh judd takes it upon himself to introduce uh the whole family to uh, just sort of as a welcome to the neighborhood or as a uh, externalization of the uh, the demonic forces in the area sort of pushing him to queue up the creeds for uh, family catastrophe. Um, we'll get to that in a moment. But uh, essentially, he shows them this pet cemetery. He says his own dog Spot was buried there. And uh, he... Uh, the family has a cat that keeps wandering. The cat gets hit by a car one day, uh, gets hit by a truck one day, and uh, while the family is away, and Judd says that's not really the pet cemetery. Like, yeah, kids bury their pets there, but there's a there's a different pet cemetery. There's this Micmac burial ground uh, further up the road, much harder to get to, but um, it might just bring bring your cat back. They hike up there. Things seem very fucking off. Uh, they head up to this beautiful mountaintop, um, and they bury the the cat. And uh, Church comes back, uh, but Church is mean and sour and treats everyone in the family poorly um, and smells awful. And the kids don't like the cat anymore. And uh, yada yada. Um, as this is is going on, uh, Lewis is also at the university. Meets a the university, um, I don't want to say fails to save the life of, but essentially uh, a, a, a DOA patient is brought in who is hit by a, a truck, um, who, uh, Pascal, um, and Pascal speaks some sort of uh, prophetic truths to him before dying. And then uh, Pascal sort of becomes this weird, uh, not quite guardian angel, but sort of like offer sage advice at different points in the movie when he's he's able to. What we sort of find out is that the the land, the the Micmac burial ground, it's not just that the it's not just that the ground is is bad and it brings back, you know, animals uh poorly. Um it's that it has a draw to it. Um it it, it sort of influences uh people's reactions around it and sort of uh pushes people to do do things to sort of queue up other people to to suffer uh, to be drawn closer to death. Um, so, can I pause you there for a sec? Is that context from the book? Because I don't feel like that's in the movie. No, it's in the movie. There's different lines where they talk about how, uh, particularly Pascal mentions he's like the ground. He's mentioning to the wife la- later. Um, mentions that um, 
it, it it's trying to it's trying to uh to stop you it's trying to hurt you it's like uh it, how it makes her crash her car when she's trying to return to uh to to the house later and judd's like i don't know why i told you about all this stuff like i don't it's a horrible horrible thing and like the way that people are sort of inextricably drawn to it both by their own sense of tragedy but also like People seem to be irrationally drawn to this thing. So it's it's just an interesting take because I've and, – and is that something that they talk about in the book? Only because – so I've seen this movie twice in the last year uh, and then I saw the remake like four weeks ago. And I, I don't feel like – I feel like people become obsessed like almost like the Arrested Development joke. Like, sure, like uh, open marriages don't work for – most people, but it might work for us. Like, there's always a reason why this time it'll work. Um, and I thought that was more just like the delusional of human spirit, like being able to control matters outside of theirs. I mean, it's both. It's both. I, we'll, I just, we'll I, let's, we'll, yeah, let's, I just was curious we'll if, if you were, I just yeah. was curious if you were like taking, because I haven't read the book, if you're taking something that's a little bit more uh, uh, underlined and emphasized in the book and like then reading what they're saying in those terms, because I really did not see it from there. Uh, no, it's in the book and there's, there's stuff in the movie about the, the ground having uh, exterior control on uh, people in the sort of area, drawing them in or pushing them away. Um, but yeah, or like that, the, the road is sort of like a, a, um, a slaughterhouse line to to animals to be buried in that ground so it's a listen say is i i would need to have uh formed this argument a little bit better by like pulling up pulling up lines of dialogue probably better but like there's specific instances that'll come to mind where like particularly uh the, the wife's car um crashing where yeah. It, yeah. it's it's the, the ground is trying to is trying to make sure that this horrible thing happens that people that 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 uh a child is buried in the ground yeah, that uh, okay. Yeah, we can talk about more. That just like did not read to me at all. As again, I'm not saying you're wrong. It I'm just wondering works. if it's more if it's more like fleshed out in the book. But anyways, but uh, yeah. So anyway, so uh, <laughs> getting ahead of ourselves, but I think everyone knows what happens in this. Uh, Gage gets hit by a car. Um, the family is grief stricken, and uh, Lewis, while he sends um, his daughter and his uh, wife away, and both of them are getting horrific prophetic visions both of uh you know the daughter's getting prophetic visions of what's going to happen and then the the wife is going is getting um rachel i should say rachel is getting uh prophetic visions of of things that have happened in the past and getting a sort of feel that something is very off and feels like she needs to return home um so that is pascal sort of giving an influence on her as well um the in a sense she has PTSD from having taken sense uh, uh taken care of um her older um illness stricken sister Zelda. And I think that's maybe the second most famous thing in this. Like Killer Kid A and then Zelda. Um Zelda's sort of like a meme at this point. Um like she's just like it's sort of those things where like, oh yeah, but Zelda and Pet Cemetery, that's scary. Because I think it scared the shit out of all of us when we were kids. Uh Zelda was her older sister who got um what was it? Uh, some sort of spinal meningitis. Yeah, I think it was spinal meningitis. It's very painful. This was before treatment was, you know, uh, where it's at today. 
and uh, she just had to lay in bed and suffer until she died. And uh, she, her sister used to say incredibly cruel things to her um, as she was she was suffering and sort of uh, doling the pain outward, um, passing the pain outward. Um, so yeah, Rachel's getting all these horrible visions of, of that, but also Pascal was kind of pushing her and driving her to go home, but sort of in a subconscious way. Uh, she's not literally seeing Pascal, um, but by the time she gets home, she is too late because she's been delayed by various tr- tricks of fate. Lewis buried, um, Lewis buried Gage in the ground. Gage came home. Gage killed Judd. Uh, Lewis goes to bed without knowing that any of this is happening, wakes up, sees that Gage has, is, uh, has arisen by the small, uh, you know, muddy footprints, um, and, uh, a phone call that Gage gives to the house, basically saying, like, yeah, I killed, I killed your wife, I killed your friend, um, I'm, (laughs) I'm a demon, um, come on over, let's hang out, and, uh, he goes over there, and, uh, with, uh, a hypodermic syringe, he, uh, Lewis kills Gage, <laughs> kills uh, Church, the cat, and he uh, picks up Rachel and says, nah, why not one more time? And then buries her in the pet cemetery. She comes back uh, also uh, just uh, horrifically mutilated and uh, not the same. And she, uh, we, the movie ends with her murdering Lewis off screen. So that took a lot for what is a very simple, lean, mean movie. Like, yeah. Like, it's not a complicated I blame movie. you wholly and not someone interrupting you to, to question a point. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, 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 uh, but it's, it's interesting because this is, um, Stephen King's story is sometimes like, you're like, oh, yeah, I remember the, the Danny's running around the hotel or whatever. But like this, I remember every plot beat and, uh, for whatever reason, like, it just takes a while to get through. Um, but yeah. So, Liz, what's your, what's your history with this? Yeah, well, I saw it as a kid and it, it was it was always scary because I remember seeing, you know, when you're watching it on cable, there's always these like little teaser trailers and they'd always show the, the sister and they'd always show, um, you know, uh, little little pieces. And it was just very terrifying. Um, and I wasn't really that scared of it. Once I saw the movie, they just like, to you know, they picked out the really great parts to, to kind of throw out at you. But um when I saw it as an adult, it was different because I had had a child. And so by that time, it was a totally different feel than when I was a child. I was like, okay, yeah, this is, it didn't, it didn't hit me emotionally. Like it hits me now when I see the child being, you know, running into the road and getting hit by a semi truck. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the things I really dislike about the movie is that I think it's less of a movie and more of a, uh, evil propaganda for the horse and buggy industry i think uh it makes a very good case against no one should drive cars that's crazy they keep hitting people in this movie but oh yeah yeah yeah. and also just like the whole like it's just like why why would they be so close to the road and just let them run into this road and let their cat go outside and now you're just looking at it from a whole different view Here's a here's a question I'm going to post to the group. How much responsibility do you think the Ramones play in the death of this child? Uh, because Sheena is a punk rocker is a very good song. Apparently so good enough to distract the semi driver from uh, not noticing a child in the road. I I think they could be potentially convicted in a court of law <laughs> as accessories. Yeah, I mean, you know what they say about. Music, it's very, uh, makes people do bad things. 
<laughs> they do say that about music, <laughs> mostly in the, in the town from Footloose, uh, but uh, but also in uh, the documentary Prophets Prey I'm watching right now. So perfect. They, uh, this uh, podcast uh, turned into a uh, Christian anti-rock music uh, um, sermon so slowly that I didn't even notice. They're too loud. First, they're killing, making mice explode. Uh, <laughs> call back to an episode we did a year and a half ago. I think we have to kind of probably like talk about that because I, I feel like the reason that this movie has left such an indelible impression on people is like, like Lydia, like you said, like it changed when you watch kids. For me, it was enough just having that many younger brothers and sisters. Like my big thing has always been like seeing like defenseless kids put in danger on screen is like, it's actually, I feel like I've watched enough that I've, I've somehow uh, cured myself of that. Um, where it's less affecting to me, but it still is like the only thing that usually makes me go watching a movie like I'd like this to be over as quickly as possible. And when I saw this when I was 19 or 20, it was just like, holy shit, like, it's just too much. I uh, where this movie ends up going with like the kid coming back as a zombie and a lot of the other components, I feel like all that stuff is I don't want to say overshadowed, but like the the part that really sticks is really that midpoint is almost like the climax of the movie. Like here is an adorable child being like run over, and in this way that like is, I always think the the worst way that some some level of like tragedy should could happen to you as a person or someone you love is where you have a few seconds to stop it but aren't able to right before it happens, and I think that is really. The horrific part. I think if they are all sitting in at a picnic and they're just eating at the picnic table and no one turns around until the car hits, I feel like that's terrible and that's horrific. But the part that really – and it's so well directed in this movie, even in like the overglow lights and everything like that. Like it's a very, very idyllic picnic um, is the fact that everyone realizes it's going to happen a few seconds before it happens and then is powerless to do anything about it and that is like uh as a parent as a just someone who exists in the world that idea of just not having enough time to prevent a impending tragedy is terrifying yeah absolutely well because yeah if it happened when you were 100 miles away like i you would still feel some sense of horrific uh awful guilt but you you wouldn't necessarily have the complexity of tragedy i feel like that you have when you're you're in spitting distance um this is this is uh not to walk away from that point but this is um i would say stephen king's meanest nastiest work um and it was that recognized by him uh and his wife and uh the book was essentially shelved for, he wrote it. He's like, I needed to get that out of my system. He shelved it for a period of time. And it's the, st- I've heard two or three different versions of the story, depending on who's telling it. Um, but while you're looking that up, it is like, Oh, sorry. Be, be, being a family member of Stephen King must be tough. Like, 
what are you writing, honey? Well, I'm writing a story about how sometimes I drink too much. What if I killed you with an axe? And like, what are, what are you writing, Dad? What if you got run over by a truck, Billy? I'm writing a whole story <laughs> about how that would affect me. Uh, so that this this was based uh, partially on a true story. He didn't lose a child, but um, he they had a cat get run over by a near, nearby highway. His daughter almost wandered in the road, and he sort of like chewed on that that feeling of um of you know imminent tragedy and death being right there even in such a serene you know secluded area um and and specifically like the experience of trying to walk his daughter through the experience of losing losing the family cat um so it is it is semi yeah semi uh, autobiographical for the first you know act i would say but tabitha king his wife uh partner helped him get sober like just as important to stephen king's story as he is by his own admission Tabitha King, uh, by some stories, she was the one that, like, you know, essentially pulled it out of the trash, so to speak, um, pulled it off the shelf and said, you know, like, we should we should get this out there. Another version of events is uh, that he was arguing with a publisher and he said to his publisher, like, all right, give me give me the royalties I'm owed on this, this and this and I'll give you this book for a lower royalty amount or some shit. And uh, he sort of like threw the book away um, in a sense. Because he was, he he felt it was so cruel, and that's the thing about Stephen King stories: is as dark as they get, there's usually some sense of redemption. Um, even in The Shining, uh, The Shining, the famous disparity between him and Stanley Kubrick is that uh, Stephen he, Stephen King gave uh, Jack Torrance the uh, redemption arc at the end of the book. In the movie, Stanley Kubrick was like, "Nope, old drunk never saw never saw the light at the end of the tunnel if he did he fucking closed his eyes to it uh and he died trying to kill his family and now he's stuck in this hell of of you know his own his own self-suffering and that's why he still won't fucking shut up about how much he hates that movie yeah it's because (laughs) anywhere it goes yeah yeah Yeah, it's it's partially it's a personal thing is that stephen king who famously got off the sauce uh needed to believe in a redemption story and very often wrote redemption stories um and stories about straight good and evil um this story is 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 cynical and bleak and dark so like if you don't have a taste for movies like this like or if you don't have if you're not willing to explore the death of a child similar to we'll be talking about hereditary i think uh in a a future episode pretty soon if you don't have the taste for that that's totally respectable that's totally fine but like if you do, um, I think that this, this movie explores some some pretty interesting territory. Um, well, it's 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 you're right. Like it is the, it's I see that with this movie. Interesting to note that the time this movie was released, this was from a box office perspective the most successful Stephen King movie of its time. It's still the sixth highest grosser of all. Uh, 43 of his movies that have been released in theaters, but at the time, all the ones that have surpassed it, which are, the five that have surpassed it, which are Misery, uh, 1408, The Green Mile, It, Chapter 2, and It, uh, all came out after it. So, like, this movie was bigger from a Stephen King perspective of The Shining, The Running Man, Carrie, Stand By Me. Like, this was huge, and it just feels like a movie that, like, I'm surprised... It was as big as it as it was. It you know it on like um it actually grossed more than Pet Cemetery twenty nineteen. Not adjusting for inflation, adjusting for inflation, it did like one hundred and fifty million dollars. I'm I'm curious if the the cruelty and the pain of the movie is what kind of drove its like success for the public, um, or if it was just like one of those things where that part is so 
uh, iconic and miserable that it became a moment that was enough to recommend it to people. Like, holy shit, you have to see this movie. Like, you're not going to believe what happens in it. And, like, that's what drove such insane, like, box office receipts for a movie like Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's got to be... I wouldn't say it's like super gory or anything. It's it's actually got some teeth to it. it I would say that the the shocking value of it had to have driven it because it's um the only way it feels it feels unique to me of its era uh, because it's good it, at matching. It has it is I'm not saying this correctly. Um, yeah, I, I think the shock value is probably a big portion of why this was such a big hit. And, and like that sort of cynicism had been turned into gold, so to speak. But I don't think Stephen King turned the nice thing is Stephen King didn't turn around and make 100 books about dead babies, you know? Oh, well, there might be a lot in the garbage. <laughs> Tabitha's like, no, a new, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping this one in the garbage. You, you write something different. <laughs> I love this movie. I think it has one huge problem. Um, and I would say that our main character, uh, sorry to agree with your husband on this one, Lydia, is not a good actor. <laughs> Uh, at all and he's really bad at expressing all the emotions that you need to express in this movie and it actually like again i don't like the remake but if you could take jason clark from that remake and put him in this movie i think you have a five-star movie yeah he particularly mentioned because i was like well what didn't it affect you like differently now that we have children and he was like you know what it actually was diminished by the fact that he was such a horrible actor and like the moment where he's like no you know when he gets hit yeah. by the truck it was just like that kind of like took took all the power away from the moment and i was just like oh wow that's pretty bad <laughs> yeah well and afterwards he's supposed to like i think he's giving the trying to act like he's had the life sucked out of him and he's a desperate man without like anything to live for and instead he comes across as like kind of a bored dude uh like kind of just a wet noodle who's like yeah like he doesn't pull off the tr- the post traumatic stress that I think he's going for. Yeah, I disagree here. I love I love the movie, but I think the movie has a general. It sort of balances at the knife point between um, camp and something that's super grim dark, which I think has helped it age well. That it's not just like all shadows and bleakness. Um, it has a certain um, high, high, you know, camp uh, value to it, um, which I, I enjoy. Um, I think it's an asset to the movie. I think it, it gives it a sort of tales from the crypt quality. Um, sort of the the story about you know uh, humans who refuse to learn lessons and in the end they're punished for it again and again that sort of thing. In that context, uh, and in the context of the movie that has like uh, an angel ghost that follows the wife around and whispers in her ear and is smiling happily that she got on her plane and stuff. Um, that in that context, I feel like he's he's perfectly functional. Uh, I might be giving him the benefit of the doubt because he's hot. But he's not Fred Gwynn, where I think Fred Gwynn perfectly, like, plays within this sort of, like, sort of uh, camp to reality mold, where, like, when he needs to get real and he starts crying, it'll break your heart. But when he's just sort of, like, opining about this dark old horror story, you're like, hell yeah, hell yeah, give us all the lurid, gross details, man. Um, but yeah, Lewis is, Lewis is definitely not an asset to this movie, but he didn't, he didn't drag it down for me, because I think the movie itself has sort of a... Uh, uh, a uh, heightened quality to it. Well, I feel like he's like, um, 
I don't know if they're doing this on purpose or that's just his acting style, but it's like, cause he's a doctor, he's the sensible scientific man and he's kind of flat in his emotions. Like they do, he, they do show some moments yeah. with him and his daughter and his son, but he's not like the kind of guy who's going to get, you know, super emotional or angry or he's, he's, most of his lines are very flat because he's just that kind of man. He's a very, you know, simple man, but he's a doctor and he keeps his emotions in check. Yeah, that's a good point. You're right, Lydia. Like that is the softest touch that he kind of like gives. It feels like, yeah, why not? They're just kids. No, they do a really good job of of giving some feeling to the characters, like, you know, the little girl and how she is and how he is with her and how he is with the son. And the son, you know, even though he doesn't have like many lines, is that he they just do a lot of shots of him like sitting in his car seat or saying little words here and there, playing with his toys, and that, you know, connects you to him more. Yeah. It makes it more sad when, you know, what happens to him happens, but you know, being that he doesn't, you know, he can't really talk they do a really good job of like really zoning in on his cuteness and his little facial expressions and the feeling of his place in the family and it's yeah it's very very like you know i actually feel like you know more emotion from the father than i do from the mother which i found odd being that it's directed as a woman i'm i probably in my opinion i would like i would never know it's directed by a woman per se well, I also think, like, so I have a soft spot for Denise Crosby because uh, she was on Star Trek for a year. Um, and she quit Star Trek The Next Generation after the first season because she said her character wasn't getting interesting things to do. Which, in her defense, Denise Crosby's defense, is true. Uh, but that was true of, like, every character on the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation. It's not a very good season. The show gets really good. First season is not really a high point. And so they kill off her character. And she's like, look, I'm going to go do movies instead. Uh, And this was the movie. This was the movie that she went and did right after Star Trek. And basically, she's never in a movie again that grosses anywhere near this level. She's barely in movies after this. She ends up going back to kind of TV guest starring. Uh, She does make the documentary from 1997 that I really like, Trekkies, um, or produced it and kind of narrates it. It it is weird. Like this was such a successful movie, and I I feel like uh, a combination of like sexism and just like that kind of recognition. Like the part of this that works isn't necessarily her character, and so there just wasn't anything after this. Yeah, I mean she yeah. she was actually good in the. She actually had a lot of more emotion in the. I still have this documentary about it called Unearthed and Un, Untold: The Path to Pet Cemetery, and they interviewed her in the documentary, and she actually was you know more interesting to watch in the documentary <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's um that's a good point i started watching the documentary when i didn't have time to finish it but she she seemed she seemed to have like a lot of like life and vigor and affection yeah. for this role when i'm like but but in my head i'm like i don't think the script gave you much and the original work gives you even less um though mary lambert i think uh does a lot to express the character within those confines it's just that, you know, the movie is, it is Lewis's movie. It's, it's, uh, it's sad that it's not more of a balancing act because Lewis has a very like patriarchal view of his family and he's not like a bad husband. He's not a shithead. He's not abusive, he's, but it's just sort of like, he's like, you're taking a pill tonight. And like, this is what we're doing to fix your bad brain. Like he has a very, yeah. and a lot of it is just, um, the times have changed. I don't think anybody is saying anything with Lewis's behavior 
Well, I and I also just think like it's a bad role for her. Um, she's really good. So like her best moment in this movie is where she comes back and kills him, uh, and like that kind of like wild look in her eye and kind of like I'm laughing at how evil I am for a second. Like I think she's really good in those like thirty seconds, and she went on almost primarily uh, from a guest starring perspective on TV shows to play villains. She's like really good at that kind of like, again, joyful, someone with a little bit of like a hint of danger or evil in, in her motives or actions. It's why like even on Star Trek, the next generation, like I think uh, later on uh, when they bring her back, spoilers for the next generation as a different character, um, she plays a bad guy and she's really good at that. And she's very fun in that. Uh, and even the best moment of her on the show originally is where she gets, uh, basically space drunk and fucks data. And she's a lot of fun in, in that, in that episode. But it's like the, when she was playing a, like a bland security, uh, officer that, that only has to give orders and doesn't get to like have that playful side. She, you know, it's just kind of a nothing role, and I think, unfortunately, for her attempt to kind of move into into uh, mainstream movies and stuff like that from TV, picking kind of that bland like character who is uh, worrying about stuff and and just it doesn't like play to her strengths. If she had gone into a movie and played a villain, I think she would have had a uh, a bigger movie career than she ultimately did, even if it wasn't a list caliber. Yeah, she has a moment in the movie where I think I'm supposed to feel sorry for her, but I really don't. So <laughs> I did. I which, never. Which part is that? <laughs> it's the part where she's telling the story of how she had to care for her sister. Oh yeah, yeah. And she says, "Oh, you know, like I, I really wanted her to die, and I, you know, instead of crying, I was laughing, and you know, it's it's a moment where I'm sure you're supposed to feel bad for her, but you know, I just didn't, I didn't emotionally connect with her at all." <laughs> Yeah, that is – and having – again, even though the new movie is nowhere near as good, like some of the acting is better. And so seeing – just having seen someone give that version of it that's very well acted, uh, it had trouble contrasting a little with, with this one. Uh, but actually that whole – the whole thing in this movie compared to the, the remake or whatever is so much – like the, the Zelda is such a bigger part of the remake than in this and like even grosser. In the in the movie, you're reliving it from the eyes of a six year old or whatever. Yes. So you can make the case that like that was her how like perception of the terrifyingness of it. I think. Yeah. But so so my dad had this is just really quickly. Um, the story ends well. My dad my dad's totally healthy and uh, he's a great dad. But uh, my dad had <laughs> cancer when he was uh, uh when I was a kid, and uh, at, at some point they had to you know get in there, cut some stuff out. And, uh, he, they had to staple his chest closed. And for years, the, the, the gore and the, the disgustingness of the stapled chest, because he was just like, I was like, can I see it? And he's like, yeah, you want to see it? And he opened his, he lifted up his shirt, showed me all the fucking staples. And then later my mom was like, why did you show that to her son? Um, <laughs> he was like, <laughs> Peter's been in his room watching Videodrome week in, week out since you showed him that. <laughs> I think this- you've affected him. I think this plus Catholicism might explain my horror movie love. Um, uh, also, I mean, the dude, the dude is, was exposed to the elements. He probably was like hopped up on painkillers. Um, but he, anyways, he, he he was just like, yeah, whatever. You want to see it? You want to see a dead body? Or 50% <laughs> of it if I have <laughs> your own dad. My dad is not I'm basically the living dead. <laughs> <laughs> next, next time I see your dad as he kicks us out of a house. 
at 10 p.m. because it's quiet time. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask him to see his scars. Uh, you know how I got these scars. <laughs> Cancer was very serious. My dad drew a big Joker makeup all across his. <laughs> uh, but in my head, the, the, it was a, it was a like gross, and there was like pus coming out, and it was this like disgusting, vicious image. And then um, I spoke to my dad recently. He's like, "No, I have pictures of it. It was just like a, a, you know, whatever, a four inch incision with some staples, and it was perfectly clean. I, you know, it didn't really bleed that much because uh, I, you know, I didn't move that much uh, after the surgery. And I was just like, "No, no, no. It was definitely like from the bottom of your belly all the way up to your chin. <laughs> it was definitely zigzagging all across your chest, and there was definitely intense. What about the arm that came out? out? What about the arm that tried to grab me? You say that there was no arm." <laughs> Distinctly remember an arm, Dad. <laughs> but yeah, I, I. So jumping back a little bit, children remember childhood trauma in a very vivid and, uh, you know, uh, not a hallucinatory way, but it is not a one-to-one literal representation of what happened, right? Like, there's very often details are exaggerated or little, like, the big details might shrink because you're focused on this one little weird thing. So, yeah, that's that's an interesting part of the Zelda story is that, yeah, you're watching a grown woman who never quite uh, had the space or the the time or whatever, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter. Trauma's trauma. She didn't have the ability to... Um, put aside these these childhood these childhood traumatic memories, or find a space a safe space for them to be locked, uh, you know, put away, uh, stored away, I should say, not locked away. Um, so that's why I think this Zelda thing is so so much more interesting, is they can really like bend out the reality of the moment and make it weirder. And there's a moment that's not childhood tragedy that I think I love in this movie is when Lewis goes into the house to find Judd. He doesn't quite know what he knows, but he doesn't quite know what Gage has done to Judd and uh, Rachel. And Lewis is already killed uh, Church the cat and he's walking into the house and it is uh, all the entire interior of the house is rotting. Um, Gage has the demonic force from the pet cemetery or, you know, Gage as his, his servant has caused this horrific hallucination um, where every part of the house is sort of rotting and mildewing and there's mold growing on the wall and, and, and he's having this straight hallucination. And then because the movie kind of has like almost like a TV movie vibe, the moment that it snaps back to reality and it's just like a normal ass, you know, working class guy's old farmhouse. Um, yeah. It's so much more jarring than like if it had snapped back and it, if it was... A dirty house, you know, because the dirty house would have made the scene creepier. The fact that it is like a pretty organized, just an old man's house, an old widower's house, doesn't do much. He mostly just drinks beer out on the patio, reads sometimes, talks to the neighbor, doesn't seem to do very much. Um, the fact that it is just such like a normcore house makes that scene so much scarier. Yeah, well, and also then when... Uh... Uh, Gage comes out, he's wearing, like, the va- old vampire of New Orleans outfit for his mom. Even's walking like he's got, like, a little bit of, like, uh, I've been around so long that the whole world sways with me. <laughs> um, anyways, I, I love it, and I want to get that costume for someone. Um, you have two children. Have you considered one of them? 
Yeah, if they're into it. I like to ask them first, Peter, before I just give costumes to them. <laughs> um, but yeah, what what other sort of uh, great horror moments in this? Or what what were scenes that stood out to you, I should say? I mean, that whole thing with like, right, like, he fucking stabs. The, like, he's terrifying. Miko Hughes, it is, uh, and I've seen a lot of interviews with him, like, about, like, how he was, like, the biggest thing in the world um, for, like, five, six years from, like, a child actor. They just never really had much of it. And he worked with all these, like, huge people and all these huge movies. I had a particular dislike of him before I ever saw this movie because he plays uh, Aaron on Full House, which, as some of you may know that listen to the show, is also my name. And he's, like, the worst little shit in the world. And I remember <laughs> watching Full House with my family and being like, oh, look, Aaron's getting in trouble again. Like, fuck you, mom and dad. <laughs> You're the one that made me this. How dare you? Uh, but he's so good as, like, evil gauge and like he looks terrifying when he's stabbing fucking judd and it's believable it's It's so believable because because you know you know exactly why judd even though he whipped out that fucking knife why judd couldn't you know do it uh yeah and this also has one of my favorite like tropes that when he's fighting his dad and his dad like whips around clearly a huge baby uh fake baby or fake toddler doll, but just that, like, get this, ba- get this baby with a knife off me and just grabs the baby and just whips him across the room. This baby's strong, apparently. Yeah, it's a strong baby. <laughs> I don't want to play with you. Yeah. Actually, no the fair, part where no he, he injects him with the with a syringe and then he, like, falls down, like, tumbles down. Yeah. I'm like, did he really, like, fall like that? Because that looked pretty real. Yeah. Like, what did he do to this poor child? Because <laughs> that was pretty. That was a pretty intense moment. He's like, he gets him in the neck with this syringe, and then he kind of tumbles and falls down. You know, that cry felt really real when he's poking the kid in the neck, like that. And then the, the, every moment after that feels very real. And that's it's another moment in this where I'm like, if you are sensitive to watching children it just sounds bad because of the context of horror movies it's not if if watching children bo- die bothers you well also i, I believe means. like in the though the funeral the scene where they have like the they're in the church and they're having the oh. the viewing or the the what do you want to call it the mass whatever for him um prior to being buried um i believe they they were talking in the documentary about how it had to be reshot several times until it was acceptable because nobody wanted that that scene particular scene to be in the movie it was just too distasteful i think there's a lot of things like that that are very difficult to watch that uh are just kind of forgotten by the car thing like i actually this time around the one that was like the scene i wanted to be over as quickly as possible is the part where he digs up his son's body and then just gives his lifeless body a very long hug yeah that one was that one was really tough. Like this idea of like just holding, like giving your kid a hug and there's nothing there. And like, uh, yeah, that's, that's, this movie does not stop the, the childhood trauma pain of like a kid getting, um, getting, uh, horribly killed just after the truck accident. There's, there's more coming. Well, they also do some flashbacks of, you know, he's flashing back. Oh, at, yeah. Like, I think what he's going to give him the syringe in the neck and he fla- kind of flashes back to all these moments of him what when he was alive. And it's like, stop, yeah. stop, stop, stop. Yeah, which I think is like, even though this movie definitely has campy elements, particularly with the ghost head trauma victim, who's like, like Peter mentioned, like using like Jedi mind tricks to get a beat up car to get her to Maine or whatever. <laughs> um, 
it really is like it, it's campy, but it's not campy in a way that like uh, detracts from the horrific moments. Like those like traumatic and scary moments are still very much present in this movie. And when I finally got around to watching the whole thing last year, that's what really struck with me is like uh, how how much the imagery in the last forty five minutes is so strong because it was just something I never heard about. Like the focus was all on Zelda and and the the incident, but oh my gosh, there's so many little moments, so many well directed moments that really just are just are difficult to watch in the best way. I think when generally when people talk about movies being cheesy or campy or whatever, people sometimes are afraid of stuff that lacks the sort of like rigid Oscar Beatty um, respectability that certain movies have. But I think you reach new higher grounds when you adequately, sorry, you reach newer higher grounds of understanding sometimes when you um, strategically use uh, certain campy elements. Like, okay, I didn't, really like the scene at the funeral where they knock the casket over and Gage's hand pops out. Like that's like a fist fight at a funeral is very funny to me. Um, it's just always going to be like a fist fight at a child's funeral. It's just, it's, I don't know why it's just, it's setting, it's tickling my funny bone. I was thinking the hand giving a thumbs up is just not a good time for a joke. <laughs> and uh, I, I do think sometimes subtlety is overrated. And I do think when you're talking about these sort of mythic folkloric kind of stories where it's, it's, it, this is very, very simply put a morality tale. It's about what happens when you don't adequately deal with, um, with death, that, that you don't make peace with death. And, um, this is saying, you know, you had the option of not bringing them up to the pet cemetery, like just because you were tempted by it and it, it, it sort of drew you in doesn't mean you had to go up there. There was no reason for you to go up there. There was no reason for Judd to tell to tell Lewis, a man in mourning, about this, uh, this fucking pet cemetery when he knew that that cat was going to come back different. It was going to come back wrong. Spot came back wrong. Why yeah, would, really wrong. Why like, he's Church fucking covered in blood. What happened, Spot? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they, what, they, they say, well, he says, Judd says in the movie, like, he actually has a connection with, with the little girl now, and he didn't, it even hurt him to see her in pain. So he'd rather yeah. have a cat come back and be an a-hole than, and who knows, dude, he's going to do who knows what to this family than to watch this little girl, you know, have a moment of pain. Yeah, Judd takes on this very grandfatherly, paternal sort of view. And the one thing I've noticed about this movie is when you're talking about Judd, he, I, I've said it before, but he's sort of, I think, the, the ballast in this movie. Like, his performance is the, I mean, Gage's performance is also um, Miko. Yeah, Miko. Miko. Fred Gwynn's performance and Miko's performance are both great, but uh, Fred Gwynn's performance as, as Judd, um, I think Judd, it makes Judd the sort of ballast to this movie. He really balances the movie out. And one thing that's interesting is you watch it once and you're like, Judd, why the fuck did you say anything? And you watch it twice. You're like, I don't know if Judd can help it. And you realize like, maybe 
Judd's role in this movie is more complicated than we think. And I sort of see Judd as like the opposite of Pascal, where Pascal has this big fucking open head wound and he's kind of creepy looking and he's got this, this, you know, sort of blonde stare. Um, And he's a fucking ghost, obviously. So you expect him to be evil, but he's really just like, hey, I'm only hanging around because some horrible shit's going to happen and I have a chance to stop it. Whereas Judd is this like sweet old man who just wants... He just, you know, he wants to be the grandpa. He also wants to be the drinking buddy. He also wants to be the guy who cooks for the family when they're going through some stuff. And he'll be there at the funeral for the the family's nanny. And, like, uh, he's got all this this sweet sort of paternalism to it. But also, like, you can't deny that without Judd, they, they, they wouldn't have gone up to the pet cemetery. I think he acknowledges that there's a moment when he tells the story of, you know, he says, you know, when I told you nobody had ever buried a body there, well, it's not true. That did happen. And this is all my fault. So he has that moment after, I believe, Gage's funeral where they're sitting there having a drink and he says, this is all my fault. Yeah. There's a part of this movie that felt like there was something missing for me. That it was the joke about the rest of development. Like, maybe this will work for us. Because they keep doing the same thing. It's like, so I like the idea that in the book, and maybe, again, I missed the, the allusions to it in the movie, that there is actually a true pull that, like, keeps wanting people to be brought back. And the actual the, – the newer movie makes that more explicit in some ways because there's a lot more – there's, like, a, a faction involved with it um, to some extent as well. Uh, so I, I really liked that concept because there is, like, the – I understand being, like, consumed with grief – uh, well, I don't to the level that the dad is in this movie, obviously, but like when you already brought your cat back and he's like a bloody mess that's biting you, like, I don't know that idea of like, well, you're just gonna have to put your kid down again. That's gonna be even worse. Um, and then to do it again to his wife, like maybe, and he's like, not, he's like fucking Herbert West and reanimator. Like it's because he wasn't fresh enough as he brings <laughs> the body to the, to the grave. Like. It does feel like people keep making the same mistakes over and over. And while that's compelling from just a, I have to be able to do something about this this force of life and death that I have no control over, I also like the idea that there's actually, like, you know, one of the most evocative phrases in all of, like, horror fiction is the idea of, like, the ground is sour. That is such a perfect terminology for what is happening there in such a limited amount of words and so I like that idea of here that there there may be something I missed or something that's more expanded on the book of like it actually the ground is not just sour, but like an active participant in trying to uh, turn people. Well, but also I think it's like to me, like as a parent, it kind of drives home that point that it's like no matter what, even though you've told me all these bad things have happened, even though this happened to me as a child and my dog came back and he was rabid and whatever, it's. It's like almost like I'm still going to do it because as a parent, I got to give it a try. Yeah, I I can't I'll do anything for my child. I won't let my child go through this pain of losing her cat. I don't care what happens. I just don't want to see her upset. And I can't live without my son. Uh, If I try, maybe, you know, it will work out for me. And it's like whatever you you're going to do this for your kids. And it's different maybe for Judd because he has this connection with his family. Like they're such a sweet family and he like connects with them at their house it, it over time it looks like he's spending more time with them and he has this grandfatherly connection to them so he's like it, i'll do anything for this family i'll do anything for this this kid i don't want to see her hurting even yeah. though he knows things that have happened in the past are not gonna you know work out it's like that's totally disregarded 
because he has this connection with his family. Yeah, I mean, it really is Judd's fault because he knew exactly all the things that were going to happen and he did it. So I, I, on, on blame, I would go Judd number one, the Ramones number two, <laughs> and the truck driver number three, I think. Well, at least Ramones are number two now. <laughs> uh, and apparently the truck was a Peterbilt, so I think I'm going to jail too. Oh, wow. Peter, you built that truck? Yeah, Peterbilt. You can't deny it. I signed my own crime. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you gotta stop doing that. You're like the Zorro of truck crime. (laughs) I feel like that's a good reason not to move to that house. I know it's just like one of those things. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm not living here. Yeah, put up a fence. It also like changed, like petitioned your local chapter of whatever to change the speed limit. Like, it's like, it, it looks like a one lane road with no shoulder. And trucks are going 60 on it? Like, not okay. R- write your city councilman. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Villagers. Um, well, every one of us has had a cat or a dog or a lizard or a monkey. What the fuck is wrong with you, Gerald? Why'd you get a monkey? Uh, I run over in that old uh, Highway 67 uh, right out of Banga. Why do we let trucks drive 75? I thought if I got a monkey, he could just jump over the trucks. <laughs> Well, I had not a, not high enough. I had three rabbits, a guinea pig, a dog, a cat, a weasel, a child, a weasel again, all run over by the truck. And I thought, why not a monkey? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, any any quick moments we we didn't get a chance. I know we're running out of time here to discuss before we get to some final parts. My my last moment that I wanted to mention is that um, I feel like this is probably not the Ramones or. Uh, or Judd's fault. Uh, probably goes back to Stephen King, but I am surprised that, you know, the book came out in the 80s, movie comes out in 1989, remake, like, no one ever bothered to let anyone know, apparently, that this is not the way that you spell cemetery. Uh, it's disappointing. Feels like could have been corrected. Yeah. Um, hire better editors, folks. <laughs> hire better editors. I suppose you can't do spell check on your old typewriter there, Stephen, but uh, insisting it was right for 30 years is truly one of those uh, I meant to do that situations, and you're better than that. <laughs> what about what about you guys? What other moments did we not get a chance to talk about? I guess just, like, Missy, just the, the uh, housekeeper, it's like, what I don't know what her what the point of that was. If it was like, some, oh. you know, what what was the point of her suicide did it have anything to do with you know the micmac grounds or was it just something you threw in for fun there's stuff that uh, there's stuff in the human body that's uh you know uh what is it called like an evolutionary uh byproduct like there's like a leftovers from like oh we really needed that when we were the australopithecus but we don't need it anymore i feel like that's something from the book that was just kind of left over because she doesn't get developed much more than she's got stomach pain and then she commits suicide the kids don't really remark on it i guess it cues in the conversation for 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 us to learn about zelda uh because otherwise why else would would rachel bring up this you know horrible memory um it, it's, it's she's let really stephen just, like, king be make, it yeah, I let Stephen King have a role. He's like, you can't cut this out because otherwise I don't know when I'd be in the movie. <laughs> right. You already cast Fred Gwynn. I don't know. Can, can I be the cat? No, Stephen. Oh, yeah. we'll put the housemaker suicide back. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Um, but yeah, he. Uh, I think it's 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 purely as a sort of um, 
in the book in the movie it's it's a clumsy way to push in um the rachel is afraid of death rachel is afraid of zelda uh themes uh theme i should say yeah that makes sense it's not in the new one and again i was like i think because they talked about his wife dying right after that but in a very callous way and that's why i was like i had a note like ooh, kind of and then he's celebrating at the big brightly lit picnic with the family. He's like, just not even taking a day after his wife uh, commits suicide. So yeah, I missed, uh, I missed who that was because it's like barely there. Yeah, in the original book, Judd's uh, wife is a very well developed character, um, and uh, yeah, because I'd read half of the book, and I I do need to get around to finishing it one of these days. It's a good book, yeah, and I remember his wife being in it at the beginning. So I think that was like, oh yeah, wife got it. Yeah, it's uh she's more of a developed part of the book and she's more of a long uh developed sort of rumination on uh people slowly facing death and she has conversations with Rachel which helps more uh, elegantly bring out Rachel's problems with death and Rachel kind of has to have the conversation cuz she's talking to a dying woman. It's uh far more interesting in the book and I feel like yeah, it's just an evolutionary byproduct of of the book um and that they just needed a quick way to get Rachel to talk about of death um which is i think sort of one of the only things holding this movie back and why some people think it's just like a cheesy campy mess uh not me at all but some people think it's a cheesy campy mess because it's 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 sometimes very like uh how are we gonna get to this conversation or this spooky scene do it do it here uh i, I came up with a 10 second excuse yeah um and i think uh, as a segue to kind of final thoughts like i think that is what was so surprising about the remake like i i remember you know, it comes out, huge success. It makes sense that people are taking a second look at Stephen King properties and, like, maybe it's time to make new versions, updated versions of this. Like, that's the culture right now. And obviously, when you have a huge success, why not go to, like, one of the other big Stephen King movies of that era, which is Pet Cemetery? I think people were like, I remember hearing from horror fans, like, this is a perfect one to remake because it can remove the cheesiness and the campiness and really get at what was so scary about the novel and what's so interesting is that like on paper the remake was like good like it's a director that people like cast is really good you know this those scenes from the trailer are very like foreboding and and well done it's not poorly directed but it really is missing something special in all that and it becomes like Again, on paper, everything seems good, but it just doesn't work. And even though this movie is a little messy, it has some acting gaps. It has so many much good, like, iconic, horrific imagery that even seeing it, like myself, all the way through, 29 years after it came out, I was super affected and, and you know, scared and enjoyed this movie. And then when I see the remake, which, you know, for someone who has no nostalgia for this movie, should have been the one, in theory that it connected with, I was like, oh, yeah. No, like, the first one is a fantastic adaptation of this book. Fantastic telling of this story. You don't need to... It's one of those, like, there's enough Stephen King adaptations that were bad that you can take a look at. Um, but I really think the the specialness of this movie is ultimately why the remake just didn't hit with anyone. No one really liked it, because we already have the good version of Pet Cemetery. Also, I really like that. I don't know how many movies he actually was on set for, but I know he was on set for this one and he was kind of hanging around and giving input and collaborating with the director. So it almost feels like you get that feeling. Yeah. Lydia, what are your final thoughts? I think 
that this movie is just, it holds up for me and it's always going to be a classic and um, I'm always, it's always going to be disturbing and it's never going to, to fade away. It's always going to hold up as a classic, you know, top, you know, 20 for me. Yeah, it uh, it still packs a punch. Uh, Thirty years later, we've been we've been doing a lot of movies accidentally on their anniversary, but this is another one, Peter. Thirty years after it came out. Uh, yeah, it was Peter. nine when this movie came out, and it still you know holds the same. You know, it's actually more terrifying to me now than it was then because I just yeah. didn't feel this. This. I mean, I mean, I know you said when you saw it, you were you were feeling that feeling of like I can't watch this, but I don't remember feeling anything. You know, like I feel now as an adult. Yeah, I mean it. it uh... It packs a, I won't say a punch, it packs a car crash. <laughs> it happens in stages, I think. Uh, because, like, when I was a kid, I remember being like, why are you still in that haunted house, you dumbass? Like, get out of the haunted house. And now I'm realizing as I get older, I'm like, moving's really hard. I don't want to do that again. <laughs> like, Or we put all of our, or like, I understand the, like, we pull all of our fucking money in this mortgage. Like, yeah, I get that. Like, you, you can't just give up the house. Yeah, I, I, every time I watch this movie, I catch something new that i uh i like more um when i watched as a kid it was just a spooky excuse and i liked killer kid movies when i was a kid because i was just like there was something like really really creepy about it because i was picturing like what if one of my classmates was one of that one of them or um there was a relatableness when i was a kid to those killer kids movies not to the killer but like that it was like a peer of mine. And now as I get older, I'm seeing it more, the, the gauge and um, just more from, I get, seeing gauge is more from like a um, a parental sort of view where I'm like, well, what? how would I deal with this tragedy if it happened to me? Um, and every year it gets older, I get older, like I see something new in that. Um, or having to move for a job is suddenly a more dramatically compelling thing than it was when I was, you know, 13 or, you know, 10. Um, but I think that I, I hit on this earlier, but the the movie is very obvious in how it communicates. Um, and like, I think the metaphor I use is it's like sort of balancing on a knife's edge, but I think it's balancing there. I think it's, it's, it's a very... Um, I, I compare it to a lot of like classic um, amicus or hammer horror films where it just gets to its point really quickly and it expresses itself in a very like brutally efficient way, but it still has room to be human. It still has room for pain and pathos and, and emotion and, and having a, a moment for people to just park and experience what it means to, to, to lose something. Um, which I think is what horror really is. And like, as much as I love, you know, big respectable horror movies that can contend at the Oscars, um, these movies are just as, as viable and just as necessary. And I think this movie is actually going to grow in more acclaim because I think for years I was hearing what Aaron was saying, um, that, oh, well, you just need to wipe out the campiness and this would be a perfect movie. As, as I get older, like I kind of I like the approach to this. I, I like the fact that it's not approaching it as this like uh, grim, super serious movie with no sense of uh, oxygen or life in it. Um, I like that it feels a little, a little like uh, not bouncy, but just, yeah, I guess just a little campy. 
Um, and, and because of that, like it helps balance out the fact that this is one of Stephen King's like most cynical and meanest work. And occasionally I do like really cynical, awful, mean movies like Hereditary was my favorite, favorite movie of uh, that year. Peter, you really need to figure out what happens when we record early for other yeah. stuff. Yeah, it's hard. Uh, <laughs> you can edit that out. Um, I really do like, I really liked Hereditary. I was a, I was a big, big fan of Hereditary and that's the cine, it's sort of, uh, if the execution of this movie were as cynical and cruel and, and all of that uh, as uh, as the source material, but um, and it's, it walks in very similar territory. Uh, I, in a way, I feel like Hereditary made the Pet Cemetery remake kind of pointless, um, and that's not actually spoiling anything about Hereditary, except for that it's thematically about getting over tragedy, working through tragedy. Um, that there's a line. Um, that Judd says, a man doesn't always know why he does things, Lord. And there's another line, uh, a man's heart Estonia, Lewis. Um, there's, there's, there's these lines that uh, clearly Mary Lambert liked bringing over from the source material and really highlighting and giving them oxygen to breathe. She doesn't breeze past them. The way, like, you know, you're watching an adaptation, sometimes, like, classic lines just get kind of get buried in the mix. <laughs> like, lines that in the book were, like, the end of a chapter, all of a sudden are just kind of chucked in. Uh, Mayor Lambert really dwells on lines like that because she wants you to think about the fact that, like, very often um, human beings don't understand the power of information and how we communicate each other about the... Um, that push against death that we're all always, you know, experiencing in some regard. Uh, human beings always have that kind of pushback against death. And Mary Lambert really wanted to highlight those lines from the text because they're thematically resonant. That That's that um, Judd didn't realize the horrific mistake he was making and how he would completely change the course of a whole family uh, and his own life. Uh, by uh, introducing these elements into the Creed family's life. These lines aren't classic just because, like, Fred Gwynn has an awesome accent and is, like, one of the most iconic horror characters ever, but because, like, he makes you sit there and... Th she makes you... Mary Lambert makes you sit there and think about what this character is and what's going on, and that's why uh, this movie rules, even if it is a little campy, because it's 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 grounded in the, the drama of who these people are. Yeah, that's a, that's a perfect wrap-up. Thank you so much for joining us, Lydia. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, guys. Yeah, it was so much fun to discuss this movie with you guys. Uh, do you have anything to promote? Uh, no, I actually don't. Uh, Spooktober, listen to the rest of <laughs> podcasts, because I'm sure all your guests are going to be amazing, and all the movies that you guys go over, it's going to be, it's a great thing to do. And I'm looking forward to listening to all of the podcasts. Thank you. Yeah, the, we've recorded this our third one, actually. Uh, and we've had a ton of fun. One's out. Uh, one is coming out. Uh, we love to talk, or we love to talk about Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> we just we love it. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin. We should change. We the love title to talk about show. Peter. Yeah, we 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 should change the title of the show to "We Need to Watch." <laughs> um, like, no, we don't like to watch. We just need to. We're compelled uh, to watch. Compelled to watch. Uh, yeah, that that's a really great episode. I'm excited. We really uh, got into a lot of stuff on that one, and this this one was fantastic. I can't wait to people get a chance to listen. And I hope uh, if you're up for it, one of these times in the future, too, you come back and join us again. Oh, absolutely! On our Goofing around show. Yay! I'm so excited. Awesome. 
but yeah, we do have one more left. Uh, it's weird because it's October 7th. So by the time you're hearing it, it'll be like uh, the, essentially the last week, uh, second to last week in October. But we have uh, kind of a big one that Peter and I almost did a couple times. And we're glad we saved it for Ladies Fright Night because uh, our guest is going to be uh, Desiree Guzetta. And we're going to be talking about Near Dark. Uh, very excited about that. I actually just rewatched that about six months ago. I went through all of I went through all of Catherine Bigelow's movies. Um, so I'm uh, even though I just watched it, excited to watch it again, and even more excited uh, because I did buy the Blu-ray before it went crazy out of print. Uh, I know I said last week it was streaming on Amazon, and if we go to the uh, Maury Show judges, they would say. That was a lie. <laughs> it is not streaming on Amazon. It is streaming somewhere, Peter, if you uh, want to watch it. Peter, you want to tell us what the fuck the name of that uh, is? Uh, I have said it a hundred times, and it is Flickster Flixy. Flicks, Flixum? Flicks Fling. Flicks Fling. Uh, yeah, so if you go to Letterboxd and look up Near Dark, there's a little where to watch. Uh, hit that button. And uh, it'll it'll take you directly to the link for this. Uh, I don't know what this streaming service is. It didn't work that well. Um, but I signed up for a free trial and then immediately unsubscribed after the movie was over because my experience watching the movie was not great. Uh, it was uh, fuzzy. The app was super clunky and crashed a lot. And But I made it through the movie. Uh, yeah, so I don't know confusing. why. What, it's what? so confusing why it's out of print and like not anywhere except this weird VHS copy that's Catherine on Flixplane. It's a movie. I know. It's uh, a fucking Catherine Bigelow movie. Like this for years, Catherine Bigelow was the only uh, woman filmmaker that a dudes could, the bros on the internet could name. And they can't even <laughs> like give us her like her horror movie, her vampire movie. Yeah. It is weird. It feels like a Dawn of the Dead situation where there must be something going on behind Somebody, the scenes. Some fuckery is going on that prevents me from paying fucking $4 on Amazon to rent this or 20 or $25 to buy a nice Blu-ray. Like, what? Yeah. Like, this movie deserves to have, like, the Scream Factory or the Synapse yeah. or Vinegar Syndrome. Like, fuck, fucking any of those shops to be able to to really blow it up. Um, And, and you can't. So... Flixy, so unfortunately, yeah, if you don't own it, you don't have a friend that can lend it to you. Uh, it's really the only way to watch it is on this Flix Fling. But uh, we're really excited to go through it. It's such a great movie. And then we're ending the month uh, with our Halloween special, which we do every year. That's a little bit different than the rest of the four movies we cover in the month. And this year, we're very, very excited to be doing uh, Brian Yuzna's 1989 uh, classic best movie of all time. Uh, society with guest Douglas Lehman, who we forced, not forced, but we suggested heavily that he watch Society just a couple weeks ago, and he did, and he wrote an amazing review about it, and met the director somehow. Um, so we're really excited to have him yeah. on for a Halloween special. We're having a Lamon party. You tried that last week. Do you think it's going to be in both <laughs> both episodes, Peter? We'll see. <laughs> You got one in and I got the other one. <laughs> like a little bit of a see who leaves it in. I don't know. Uh, anyways, yeah, this was a blast. Thank you so much again, Lydia, for coming on. Uh, and uh, don't let build a fence is my parting words. If you have a if you have a house, build a fence around it. Yeah, thanks, Aaron and Peter. And yes, if you're a parent, just build a damn fence. That's the moral of the story. <laughs> build the dang fence. No, damn. <laughs> Oh, oh no! Sorry, I'm you need that. You need that. You need that to drive the point home. It just build, build a, a damn, damn fence. fence. All right. Good night, everyone. 
Good night. Now old Mr. Johnson had troubles of his own. He had a yellow cat who wouldn't leave his home. He tried and he tried to give the cat away. He gave it to a man going far, far away. But the cat came back the very next day. The cat came back. They thought he was a gunner, but the cat came back. He just couldn't stay away. Give me a meow, go. Now the man around the corner swore he'd kill the cat on sight. So he loaded up his shotgun with nails and dynamite. He waited and he waited for the cat to come around. Ninety-seven pieces of the man is all that they found. But you know, the cat came back the very next day. The cat came back. They Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand and you want to support the show show we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on itunes i know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help and so every podcast wants that help so please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically they hopefully want to tune in and listen and thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years uh we really do appreciate you uh with kisses and smooches peter and aaron Mm. 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 <laughs> <laughs>